Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth News Interviews. I'm joined by my co-host, Dean. Hello, everyone. And our guest today, Professor Sarah Finkelstein. Hi. Hi, thanks for being here, Sarah. It's great to be here. Thank you. So today's topic is uh, is COVID-19, which is a very timely topic, but maybe an unexpected link between COVID-19 and the earth sciences. But we all know that COVID-19 has affected us in one way, shape or form. Here on this podcast, we specifically talk to academics, researchers, and scientists such as yourself, Sarah. And I was wondering, how has this pandemic affected your research and your lab group? Oh, that's that's such a big question. It's affected us in a huge number of ways. My research area is paleoecology and paleoclimates, and I'm a field and lab scientist. So we do all of our work collecting samples and then analyzing them in the lab, that's the bulk of what we do. So with the closure of the labs and the suspension of field work, it's led to rethinking of a lot of things. And as difficult as it's been, I'm actually quite excited about some of the new things that we're developing in terms of data analysis, in terms of taking advantage of the opportunities to work with the incredible amounts of data that we now have access to at our fingertips. And we're working on some some really cool stuff. And uh, so all in all, I, I actually feel positive about how our group has been able to respond to such a tough situation where there's just been so many impacts and so much suffering in the world. Full disclosure, I'm part of her her lab group. I'm doing a summer undergrad research project with her on swamps. Yeah, and Dean's, Dean's actually working on an example of some of these untapped data sets that there's just a lot of data out there and there's a lot of work that needs to be done in making sense of it. So it's, it's been exciting to work with you, Dean, on that. I think some exciting things are going to come of it. Yeah, yeah, I've really enjoyed it too. I've really had fun kind of exploring remote research this way with the closure of the lab and field work. It's been a, a challenge and a new, totally new undertaking for me to kind of just pour over the research in a way that I never would have done. So Sarah, what actually got you interested in earth science? So was there like a moment in university or, you know, some field work, like you said, that you really enjoy being out in the field? Was there a moment in time where you're like, yes, this is what I want to do? Oh, another really big question. Um, I, I always liked science, even when I was a kid. And I remember I was just thinking back to, I have a daughter who's five and she's starting to get interested in science and she's starting to talk about it a little bit through her schoolwork. And it's, it's brought back a lot of memories to me. I remember my grade three science fair, I had done a project on the oceans and I had made seawater samples of different salt concentrations and put different objects in them to see whether they corroded or not. And so I've always been really interested in, in the earth and in ecosystems and in science. And I knew that that's what I wanted to study, but I guess I really decided to follow this path. It was, it was probably because of a field experience. I, in high school, I had an opportunity to do a field course in environmental science in Costa Rica. And that was my first time going to the tropics and just seeing the incredible biodiversity in the tropics really changed the course of my life. I, I became much more passionate about environmental issues and I'm just much more interested in studying the natural world. And at that time, this was in the 1990s, we weren't really talking a lot about climate change. We should have been talking more about it, but it, it wasn't really on people's radars, but tropical deforestation was. 
And so that was, a, that was a really big issue that I got interested in. And my first two degrees, my undergrad and my master's were in tropical plant ecology. And so I, I had always had that interest, but in the course of doing my undergrad and my master's research in tropical plant ecology, I started to get really interested in longer periods of time and larger spatial scales. And that was because I was involved in this project with this forest dynamics plot on an island in the Panama Canal zone. And we were studying seedling dynamics in these really small plots, like one meter by one meter. And we were, so it was very small scale research. And we had two or maybe three years of field data. And that was considered like a killer data set in ecology at that time, because we had three years of field measurements. But I just had this sense that there's no way we're going to be able to understand why there's so many species in this tropical rainforest by looking just at three years of data that we needed to take a longer perspective through time. And then I started getting really interested in paleoecology and trying to use the incredible archive of Earth history to be able to understand contemporary ecological processes and questions. So I guess that's kind of how I got to where I am. So you kind of moved away. You mentioned that you were working with this one cubic meter of data, and then you moved away from that into this big kind of trying to understand Earth's history. So you really changed the scale. Yeah, yeah, I did. So when I started a PhD program, actually at U of T in physical geography, that's when I started working in paleoecology. And it was a pretty steep learning curve because my training up to that point had um, a little bit of geosciences, but it was mostly evolutionary biology and ecology. So it was it was a steep learning curve in PhD program to get up to speed on quaternary science, on climate history, um, on earth materials, on, on glaciers and how glaciers shape landscapes, which is just so important in, in many parts of the world. But it, but it was really rewarding. I've really tried to keep the perspectives from ecology as well. And I, I think they continue to inform my work still today. So Sarah, what makes a topic interesting to you when you're about to start a new project or if you, when you think of a new question that you want to investigate, what are some things that kind of tips you off and makes you want to go after that question? Hmm. I mean, I think any of us who are working in science, we're, we're, we're really drawn to questions that have been unresolved for a long time that people have been talking about for a while or processes that we can observe, but we, we can't understand well. So in my own research, I'm really interested right now in wetlands and how wetlands bury carbon over time. And what's the fate of that carbon that's buried in different types of, of wetlands? So this is an observation that we we know that wetlands bury this carbon. But we don't really know exactly what the importance of different factors are and what the fate of all that carbon is in response to, to different drivers. And this is something that's been in the literature for decades and decades. Um, so I guess the desire to contribute to those kind of questions. Um, increasingly, I'm really motivated to try to do research that's relevant to addressing the current climate crisis. That, that's influencing me a lot right now when I'm planning research grants. What can I do to contribute? And again, I am an expert in, in wetlands, and these are really important ecosystems from the perspective of the carbon cycle and climate. So there's lots of natural natural fits there. So I guess that that's something that's becoming increasingly important. And also, I have to say, just students. I mean, students that I've, I've, I've worked with have been a really big source of inspiration. And, and their curiosity, the things that they're interested in, the things that they've observed, have definitely informed the development of research grants and research ideas that I've worked on collaboratively with, with students. So that's, that's a nice, really nice thing about being a professor at U of T. 
speaking of climate change, climate science, that actually it has a, a fundamental link to the topic for today, which is the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, this paper, which was released by EOS, which is an AGU publication, I guess, it talked about the importance of Earth scientists, planetary scientists, in investigating this. I was really surprised with this because I couldn't think of a link immediately, but it says soil scientists, climate modelers, hydrologists, and people from many other disciplines can offer valuable insights into the coronavirus pandemic and other global health challenges. And part of that has to do with this concept of ecotones. Could you explain what an ecotone is? I've actually never heard of this before this. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. This is a concept that, that comes up a lot in ecology and in biogeography. And I, I did kind of um, respectfully want to disagree with um, the authors of that the the EOS piece on their use of the term ecotone because in an ecological understanding or a biogeographic understanding of ecotone these are basically transition zones or buffer zones between ecosystem types so for example in Ontario we have this really broad huge ecotone separating the Great Lakes St Lawrence mixed forest with the boreal forest. And this ecotone spans like tens of kilometers, even hundreds of kilometers in some places where there's a gradual shift in the, the composition of the tree, forest, canopy, um, changes in soil properties and so forth. And sometimes ecos ecotones can be more abrupt and sometimes they're, they're really diffuse in that way. But these are the natural transition zones between biome types. In the EOS piece, the authors seem to be really referring to kind of the human biome interface. So what happens when humans are undertaking land use change and, and removing forest cover, for example. So this is creating what you might call an edge effect. So where you have the impacted area and the more natural forest cover, savanna cover, what, what have you. Um, and this is quite different than an ecotone because it, it's really anthropogenic in origin. But I, I think that, that that interface between humans and natural ecosystems is a really critical one in understanding the COVID-19 pandemic and virtually every other major environmental issue and health issue that we're grappling with. Right. So it, it's estimated that 75% of human pathogens actually originated in animals and then jumped after a close contact with humans. So these mixing zones or these these edging effects, as you said, definitely have a lot to do with this. When you disturb a habitat, it can get harder to predict the, the mixing between the wild uh, animals, the ecosystem, and, and the humans. Some examples of this that I read about was in 2013, an 18-month-old boy is believed to have triggered an Ebola outbreak after playing near a tree hollow, which held fruit bats. And the bats, in turn, may have edge closer to this village because their own nearby habitat was destroyed due to foreign mining and timber operations. Mm -hmm. So this, this does seem to have a direct link with a lot of different areas of earth scientists. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I think that this issue of, um, of natural habitats and the ranges of species is, is a really critical factor here. And I know when I was studying ecology, we spend a lot of time thinking about what is the distribution of a species, whether a plant or an animal or a microorganism, what is the geographic area over which it ranges? And what we find for a lot of mammals, for example, like bats or, or large mammals, they require really large ranges. So the size of habitat that they require for their life history, for successful foraging, for predator avoidance, for breeding, it just requires a huge amount of space. That seems to be something that goes hand in hand with being a mammal, that you need a lot of space. 
And, and that's true in Canada when we see the catastrophic declines in large mammal populations. It's very often associated with encroachment on, on habitat. Even if that encroachment seems like it would be really minor, just the construction of like one logging road, for example, still has a lot of impact. And I know when in ecology, a big debate that was you know talked about a lot when I was studying ecology was the sloths debate. And the sloths debate refers to the single large or several small nature reserves. So if you can only conserve like 100,000 square kilometers, for example, should that be in one big chunk or should you have 10 separate smaller ones? And the ecological evidence continues to come back to the importance of having connectivity and having larger areas for mammals to range in. And this is really a big problem for humans who are using forest products, who are doing mineral extraction, who are doing agriculture. It's really hard to maintain that connectivity. And so as a result, you have these mammal species who have experienced a reduction in the area of their range. And so they're going to come into much closer contact with humans. So it's our land use planning. We need to be a lot more aware of that facet of mammalian behavior to understand it better. Yeah, I recall learning about this in uh, GGR 305, which is the biogeography yes, yes. class. That was one of the many things I learned there with the, with the uh, conservation strategies. Yeah, and that's what we really need to be thinking about to be preventing these kind of spillovers. And I mean, humans, as long as ever since we domesticated animals, we've been getting pathogens from animals. So if we look at smallpox, but influenza, which comes from chickens, from domesticated chickens, you know, th this is something that, that happens when humans come in close proximity to animals. But there's a lot more that can be done in terms of land use planning to minimize those kinds of interactions. One of the things that was also uh, noted was that the economic hardships caused by COVID-19 could in the future actually make other zoonotic spillovers more likely to occur. So Brazil has axed more of their environmental regulations in an effort to boost their economy with the uh, deforestation that they've that they've come to rely on economically. And so you have so you have that direction where we're more encroaching into their land and then the UN has expressed concern that the pandemic could push hundreds of millions of people into poverty in developing countries and in Africa, where their only safety net is in the land and the waters and the forests outside of the cities. So as the economic unrest occurs, people go further out to nature. And then you have these anthropogenic land changes causing wild animals to increasingly foray out of their normal ranges and in closer to these edging areas between their habitat and humans. And so they're also being pushed. And these wild animals in the, in the humans are coming to the same area. Yeah, exactly. And like so many environmental issues, it's so tied up with social justice issues. And we can't expect to resolve any of these environmental questions until we have a more equitable distribution of resources around the world. And this is what the UN Sustainable Development Goals really speak to, how the relationship between human well-being and environmental well-being is very strong. And we can't have one without the other. So these are very complex problems, for sure. And then, of course, there's the tie with climate change, um, altering the ranges of insects. Just coming up into the southern U.S. is one example I know of, uh, I think, malaria. Mm -hmm. uh, coming up into southern U.S. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's more risk of disease coming from things that earth scientists can help shed some light on.
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's a really big one. That's a great point that with climate change, we are experiencing changes in the distribution of those ranges. So and there's certainly a branch of our scientists who, who work on that. So that's a really important one. And another thing that, that I've been thinking about recently as well is just the, the work that our scientists do on the atmosphere and on air quality, because there's been some really interesting results that's come out recently showing that people who live in areas with poor air quality if they do experience COVID, their symptoms are much worse and their outcomes are much worse. And now, for example, in the American West, we're going into wildfire season and there's massive COVID outbreak and now wildfire season. And wildfire season creates huge amount of health issues, even if there's no COVID, because people are inhaling smoke and it, it creates a very high disease burden. So lots of our scientists are, are engaged in a study of wildfire and understanding the drivers of wildfire, predicting wildfire, modeling wildfire. So earth scientists, I think, have a really important role to play in pinpointing the comorbidity risks of COVID. So, you know, what, what are the what are the environmental situations that are happening that can actually make it worse? And so the paper ends by calling earth scientists to work on convergent interdisciplinary research teams with biologists, economists, social scientists, to help tackle these complex situations. Have you ever been a part of any kind of research team like this? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I've definitely been a part of collaborative research teams that contain members of different disciplines within the sciences. So, you know, have someone who's an expert on like dating rocks and someone who's an expert on fossils and someone who's an expert on climate history or a geochemist who's an expert on stable isotopes. So these kind of multidisciplinary science teams, um, I have had a lot of experience with and everybody sort of contributes their analysis and people kind of think across these different analyses to interpret interpret them together. Um, I've also worked a lot with archeologists who, who, who do science, but they also do social science. So they try to understand why humans in the past have done different things. And those have been really interesting collaborations. But as you get into the social sciences and the humanities, it becomes harder to talk across disciplines. It's very challenging. Um, I, I look forward to having more opportunities in that area, but it is it is really quite challenging. A lot of times it ends up being kind of arm waving of people saying, yeah, we're an interdisciplinary team, but it's actually really hard to talk across disciplines. And I, I think that uh, that's something that we could be addressing more through undergraduate education, for example. So having having students meet each other across disciplines, and I don't think that happens nearly enough, even at U of T. So what, what are some of the challenges that you've come across in, in having these multidisciplinary projects? Well, I think, for example, there can be different, um, very different research methods. So you have quantitative research methods versus more qualitative research methods. So how do you bring those together? That can be difficult when you're, if you imagine writing a paper and you're writing up the results, when you get into the nuts and bolts of that, that can be tricky to do. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I kind of wanted to move back to a previous point that you mentioned during Dean's summary. So you mentioned something that's really important for preserving animal habitats, which was improved land use planning. And I kind of wanted to know what goes into this concept, what has to be considered in order to improve the way we keep the connectivity of these habitats? Mm -hmm. that's, that's a really great question. And I can really only speak to how that happens in Ontario. 
Um, and even then I, I haven't done, I haven't been really engaged with that on the policy side. And that's another example of a sort of multidisciplinary thing where you have policy people on the one hand, you have all the different stakeholders who are, who are weighing in. You have the science people who are just one of many voices on how, how land use planning should take place. But in Ontario, under the previous government, for example, there was a, a very extensive land use planning exercise that took place for the far north. So how, how do we make decisions about, for example, planning resource extraction or planning road development or planning mining development? And one of the things that I was really proud of having contributed to from the science side is trying to make an argument that when we're making discussions about where to put a road, one of the things that we should take into consideration is below ground soil carbon sequestration. So we shouldn't put the road in places where there's the most soil carbon, because when we put the road there, it makes it vulnerable to oxidation and release to the atmosphere. So that's just one example of how it can get integrated. Although unfortunately that whole land use planning exercise was scrapped by the current government and it, it's going to be starting again in a very different format. So that's the other difficulty that you know governments change and priorities change. But the scientific imperatives remain the same. So it's 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 tricky. I'm glad I'm not in policy. I think that would be a really <laughs> tough field to be in. So aside from climate change, changing animal habitats, it, it mentions things like, like soil. Uh, what other climate phenomena might entice pathogen change or different pathogen dynamics? That's a really interesting question. I, I know some people have, have wondered about, and I think you may have written on this on your um, outline for this episode, about the role of thawing permafrost. Is that a risk for, for releasing new pathogens? And I, I don't think that there's really any evidence for that. I mean, we know that there's ancient DNA that's preserved in, in permafrost, and that's been leading to some really interesting findings, but we don't have any evidence that that could actually yield any pathogen that could infect a human. Right. I mean, I know DNA, RNA has a half-life. I think it's in the thousands of years, but it has a, it has a, a constant kind of decay rate. So possible yes it, it's very vulnerable to decay for sure maybe it's possible for more recent things but i can't imagine anything really old being a danger to us yeah i mean our, our biggest danger there is just the release of the carbon that's a major danger mm-hmm. so sarah i was wondering if you could tell us i mean kind of looking towards the brighter side there's been some claims that there may be some undiscovered species that could secrete molecules that can be used in the pharmaceutical industry to treat illnesses that are currently incurable. Oh, oh yes. Right? It's great. It's it's true. Okay. So that's, that's great. And we kind of wanted to know if there was a streamlined effort by the scientific community to find these species. And what do you think your role is in this or just a general earth scientist role in this? I'm happy to hear from the get-go that this is true. That's a really great question. I don't have any numbers in front of me, but a significant number of pharmaceuticals are derived from plants that were discovered in nature. They may have been discovered through paleoethnobotany. So through traditional uses of plants by indigenous people that has led to the development of countless pharmaceuticals. Many, many, many pharmaceuticals come from from plants. And this is a major concern with the catastrophic loss of biodiversity that we're we're experiencing right now. Um, In terms of the the way that drugs are developed and prospected for, I can't really speak to that too much. I'm, I'm no longer really involved in any kind of tropical research, and it doesn't necessarily have to be in the tropics, but because the the overall biodiversity of the tropics is like order of magnitude greater than in temperate or boreal regions, 
the tropics tends to be where a lot of a lot of those successes have come from. But there, there is ongoing work on that, and that work's coming from academics. It's coming from the pharmaceutical industry because this is their raw materials where they can they can get new ideas for for drugs. Um, it's coming from partnerships with traditional knowledge keepers and indigenous people who've been using plants for different purposes for long periods of time. And it's also coming from there's a, there are a number of really great not for profits who are doing global forest monitoring and forest biodiversity. So that's a really important reason to really focus on biodiversity conservation. Mm -hmm. So I kind of feel like this politicizing of the COVID-19 pandemic kind of reminds me of the climate science debate, how Mm -hmm. it's it's just kind of been politicized and the dialogue has been taken away from the scientists and kind of given to politicians in the media. Do you kind of see this as well? How is it as a scientist or someone who is after the truth professionally, how does it feel to you? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really great point. And I I think my experience of this has been quite narrow because, well, as you can imagine, I haven't left Ontario during the pandemic. Um, And I think in Ontario, our policy responses have been really informed by the science to a large degree. So it's nice to see that our our leaders have really tried to use science to inform the public policy guidelines. And I I think a lot of the guidelines have been have been quite conservative with respect to the science. So that's been nice to see. I know that's not the case in other jurisdictions of the world. So it's been quite nice from that perspective to be in Ontario. But I, I think in many places it has it has become really politicized. And I know that there's been a lot of disinformation about COVID-19 spread through social media. Um, as Dean knows, I don't really use social media, so I don't see it. <laughs> um, but but I hear that it's there in spades, uh, which is really concerning. And I, I also hear about the anti-vaccination movement, which is also really, really concerning. Um, so I, I know those things are there. And that's certainly been something that climate scientists have been dealing with for a really long time. There's an anti-mask thing on now. There were protesters just the other day. Hugs, not masks or something like that. And mothers against distancing. Yeah, that's just bizarre. I mean, I, I think this is a bit of a digression, but just, you know, Dean knows I have two young kids, age five and two. And, you know, you do have to weigh the risks of distancing versus the harms to their mental and physical health of not distancing. Like my kids have returned to their daycare this week. And oh, okay. with two-year-olds, you, you can't do physical distancing. So daycares have been given the green light to reopen in Ontario as of late June. Mm-hmm. But young children, they can't physically distance. It's just not a concept that they can they can mm-hmm. do. So we'll see what happens. But the evidence and the scientific evidence that was used to inform the recommendation that daycares can reopen is that children are not good spreaders of COVID-19 and the risk to children is very low of actually getting the disease. I've also seen that work. I think it was some analysis done in Finland during one of the previous pandemics. They looked at the disease spread in schools there. So yeah, that was actually, Mm -hmm. I was surprised by those results too. It was kind of counterintuitive to me. Mm Mm-hmm. So I kind of wonder, I'm sure scientists don't exist in this bubble. I mean, a lot of people like to have the perception that scientists are in this ivory tower, but I'm sure scientists don't exist in a, in a bubble, like I've mentioned before. So we see all this information being spread that's, that's not totally accurate, but I wonder if it's the same in the scientific community. Is there things that are being spread? People who are misinformed, who are, who are spreading this information in the scientific community. Does this happen in your experience? Or do you think scientists are kind of immune to it? 
That's a, a great question. I don't think scientists are immune to it just by virtue of being scientists. I think scientists do have training that if they follow their training, that you are supposed to be skeptical of what you read and to look for the evidence and, and to understand that the quality of sources is really important. So, I mean, these are key features of scientific training. So I think the chances of, of scientists being unscrupulous about spreading information is lower, but scientists are, of course, human too. Right. And um, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes and, and everybody has their own biases and their own perspectives through which they're seeing things. I think it's an illusion to think of scientists being this sort of objective, unbiased group of people. That's really not, that it's been shown many times that that's not the case. That we all have our, our biases. That's very true. I've made the case to some people I've talked to that everyone has biases, but you have epidemiologists with biases and then non-epidemiologists with biases. So who should you trust when it comes to making recommendations on things like this pandemic? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I remember talking about this a little bit at the climate panel, Dean, about whether people who have expertise in other areas should be commenting mm -hmm. at all on, on things. And, and I know there are a lot of people who, who have the view that you shouldn't. And I mean, I think it's okay to comment but to be transparent about, about your sources and about your level of experience. I mean, someone who's been researching coronaviruses for their career or who is an expert in the spread of infectious disease, obviously that kind of person is drawing on experience that is highly valuable in understanding the current situation. Um, but I mean, for example, just thinking about, about COVID, what I've found really interesting is a lot of what people are, are talking about, a lot of what people are seeing in the news every day, people are looking at data. People are looking at the case count. People are looking at the mortality rate. People are looking at plots of time series. And everybody, I mean, I never would have imagined that concepts like exponential growth or five-day running average would become something that people are talking about in everyday life. Mm -hmm. So people really are talking about those kind of concepts in everyday life now. And this is something that that earth scientists are expert on. Like we, 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 that's what we do is we look at changes over time. And we, we look at, is this, is this a trend? Is this a peak? Is this, or just a blip? Is this noise in the data? What, what, what do these numbers over time mean? So this is something that I think we have a lot of expertise that we can bring to the table. And whether that's case counts of a disease or whether that's global temperatures, it's the same type of data. So I think that's an, another interesting way that earth sciences can sort of weigh in on elucidating how this pandemic is unfolding. So in a way, earth science is a very practical kind of science in a way because it can inform policy and the way that we are reacting to this pandemic. But I wonder, since you have some previous experience working around policy, or I guess you did that for four years until the government changed. And I was wondering, how difficult is it for scientists to bridge that gap between policy and academia? And what's your experience with that? Yeah, that, that's a really great question. And um, so just to clarify on with the the previous Ontario government had developed this land use planning document, and I was a member of the science team who helped inform some of the science content there. So I wasn't actually at the table with the policymakers. I was really in the background working on some of the science background. Okay. But I, I think it is really quite, quite difficult to do because of what I was mentioning before with the multiple stakeholders that you, know, you have the scientists, but they're only just one voice at the table when a policy is being developed. And I think we've seen this with COVID, that you know, epidemiologists and public health people are telling us one thing, 
and business owners are telling us another thing. Um, school boards are telling us another thing. The working families are telling us another thing. There are all these stakeholders who have their, their points and their perspectives and the policymakers have to somehow navigate that in a democratic system like ours. We can't have the scientists decree what the policy is going to be. Right. Because that wouldn't be democratic in our system that that wouldn't work. So I, I think, and Dean and I have talked about this quite a bit, just the work that we can try to do to, to, to promote scientific literacy into society and just to get our work more out there so that it, science isn't so separated into just, you know, what people do in labs or in technical journals, just to sort of get it out there in the world more, I think will help with a lot of these things to, to legitimize the scientific perspective over a larger swath of society. Because as we've seen, this really, this, sometimes there's just not a lot of buy-in science of, from all of society. People just don't see it as being a framework that they need to listen to to make decisions. So would you say that it's one of your personal missions to engage in the greater community and promote science literacy? Um, I guess I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's one of my missions. I mean, I would like it to be, but to be honest and to be realistic, it hasn't been a huge emphasis just because pressures on time and so forth are so great that it's really hard to get in and do that. But as I get further along in my career, it's definitely becoming more important. I mean, when you're a new professor, it's not really that incentivized to do that. I mean, you're incentivized to publish in very technical journals, to get a lot of very technical research grants. You're not really incentivized to be out there in the community talking about your research. So that that's a change that could and should happen in the wider system that I, I think would be really positive. And now that I'm no longer an early career person, I have the luxury of being able to think more broadly about trying to get out there and speak more publicly about our work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that should definitely be a change to to be installed. I mean, that would be fantastic if we got more young scientists or just all scientists in general communicating with the larger society. Mm -hmm. So as our episode reaches its end, we got two more questions for you that we ask everyone. And my question is, if you could solve one scientific mystery in your field or or just another an area that interests you, what would it be? Oh, that's a that's a good one. I was I was thinking about that this morning, um, and I I've been um, just thinking ahead to a new course that I'm going to be teaching in the fall. And I'd have to say, if there's one big mystery in the earth sciences, it's what caused the extinction of almost all life at the end of the Permian 250 million years ago. And we know that that time period was associated with large scale volcanic activity and the emplacement of Siberian traps, and there was massive pulses of CO2 into the atmosphere. Um, but there were also lots of other changes in atmospheric composition. There are some interesting ideas about a catastrophic loss of ozone, which led to all these mutated spores and plants. So was it genetic mutation caused by ultraviolet radiation? Was it the warming itself? Was it the aerosols from the volcanoes? There's a lot that's unknown there. And it's, I think it's, it's really quite relevant for understanding global change today. I don't want to end on a, you know, too dire of a note, but as we know, we're experiencing very rapid rates of concerning global change right now. And I think looking in earth history, we have lots of other examples of catastrophes. Trying to understand them better would be really important. There've actually been several papers out on that particular extinction. Yeah, lots. Yeah. Recently. So I I know that we're going to explore that in a future episode. Oh, okay. I'll have to tune in for that. Oh, and we'd love to have you back if you want to talk about the mass extinction that's happening right now. Sure, yeah. All the change would be really exciting to talk about that. Yeah. Um, and then my question is, if you weren't an Earth scientist, who would you be? 
Okay, this is this is a tough one. Um, I, I think, I mean, if I, I, I interpreted this question as if I didn't have the job that I have, what other job would I want it to have? And I one thing, this is a, this is kind of a fantasy, but one job I think I would have really loved having would have been helicopter pilot. And I know that sounds kind of odd, but um, in my experience working in the North over many years, I had the opportunity to go in a lot of helicopters and it, it's just, it's an amazing experience to see the landscape in, in that way. And it, it, it can really revolutionize your understanding of landscape processes and give you a whole other appreciation of what shapes landscapes. And also the, the knowledge that pilots have to have of weather, of reading the weather, reading the atmosphere, and just the technical knowledge to fly such a complicated machine always really, really impressed me. So I, I think if I could have any dream job, that would that would probably be it. With the one caveat that I would want to fly a helicopter that has a low carbon biofuel of some kind, so it's not burning fossil fuels during my work day. But I think that would have been a really fun career path. Maybe mark that off for retirement. <laughs> Pilot. Well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If I if I was younger, I would definitely um, be interested in, in trying to look into that. That is an awesome answer. I mean. I mean, and I'm sure it would be something that connected to flying around Earth scientists up in the north, seeing what they can find. It's a lot of interesting things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so now that we have asked you the two toughest questions uh, of the bunch, I'd like to hand off the mic to Dean, and he's going to tell us the quote of the episode. All right. So the quote is, sensible decision making involves acting on the information we have even while accepting that it may well be imperfect and our decisions may need to be revisited and revised in light of new information. And that is by Naomi Oreskes, who is an historian of science at Harvard, but she actually got her start in geology, which I was surprised to find out. Hmm. Very interesting. She's a great person, really inspirational thinker. Yeah, for those who don't know, I'm also a minor in the history and philosophy of science. So she's been on my radar for a long time as well. I think the quote is very, very relevant to what we were talking about. And thank you so much to Sarah, our guest. Thank you so much for being here with us, for talking with us and sharing new information. We learned a lot. Thank you, guys. This was really fun. And uh, it's just great to see students who are so engaged. And it gives me a lot of hope for the future. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. We, we hope to have you back. Absolutely. We have to. That would be fun. <laughs> thank you. And thank you to our listeners. We hope to see you tune in next week for a brand new episode of Earth News Interviews. Until then, leave no stone unturned. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university.